Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan, and I'll be your host for today. Today, we're joined by the award-winning journalist, Justine McCarthy. Justine has been at the forefront of Irish journalism for four decades. Today, she writes a weekly column in the Irish Times and has just released a new book, An Eye on Ireland, new and selected journalism with highlights from her many pieces of writing over the years. Through that writing, in papers including the Irish Independent, the Sunday Tribune and the Sunday Times, Justine has given voice to victims of sexual abuse. She has questioned the perpetrators and peacemakers of the Troubles, held politicians to their word, and altogether kept the Irish people informed of the ever-changing story of Ireland. We explore that story today. First, through her own childhood. Justine explains the origin of her love of writing, her experience of fear and loneliness, the impact of losing her father at a young age, and how her mother managed to persevere thereafter. We talk about her unlikely entry into Rathmines College of Commerce to study journalism about her early experiences in the field, and we delve into some of the most consequential stories of her career. From her first published article about discrimination against women in this very college, to her most recent column on the crisis in Gaza, Justine leads us with her thoughts on justice, compromise, and how the two can bring about peace. It was an honor to mark the 10th episode of Bramcast with this conversation with Justine McCarthy. Justine McCarthy, thank you very much for coming on to Ramcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Stephen. Of course. When did you discover that you enjoyed writing? Oh, when I was very young uh, in school. I had a brilliant English teacher when I was in first year in school, and she used to get us to write very creative essays. I remember the titles of two of them. One was Cobwebs, and the other was Clean Sheets. And I got like gold stars or whatever the equivalent was. So that made me love the English language. And ever before that, I'd always loved reading and I would have had novels confiscated by the nuns. I remember I was reading Leonurus. I think it might have been Mila 18 or Exodus or something. And the nuns were horrified that I was reading this, that it was way too advanced for me. Um, yeah, so I suppose that that combination of loving fiction and then just writing. And when I was 15, then I had a poem published in the Evening Echo in Cork. And that was a fantastic thrill. My God, if I read it now, I'd be mortified, I'd say. <laughs> and was it the content of Urus's book that the nuns disapproved of or just the fact that you were more advanced than they expected you to be at that age? I think it was probably both. Um I went to the Ursuline convent in Black Rock, which prided itself on bringing up ladies. And I suppose this wasn't the sort of material they would have considered appropriate reading for a young lady. Um, there would have been a lot of violence and a lot of complicated history, I suppose, that they thought that I wouldn't understand. But my older sister had a very good friend who was into um, you know, quite advanced books as well. And she used to smuggle them in to me in school and pass them on to me. Contrabanzo. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And how did writing help with the fear in your childhood? In your book, you, you talk about how fear was a big part of your childhood. 
how did your uh, um, love for writing interplay with that emotion? That's a really good question. And it's something that I haven't really thought about too much. Um, I do know that when I was in fifth year in school, I realized that writing was cathartic um, because so many uh, of the girls in school wanted to take honours, leavings, uh, the, the honours paper in uh, English in the leaving cert. The, uh, the school decided to do a competition in order to divide us into honours and pass class. And the competition was to write an essay. And the title of the essay we were given was Loneliness. And I was the living expert on loneliness because I had been sent to boarding school at the age of six. And in those days, you went in in September, you got home at Christmas. You went back in in the in middle of January. You got home in April for Easter. You went back in until June. There were no uh, midterm breaks, no weekends at home. So the loneliness uh, each time, you know, at the end of the holidays, each time you went back to school, the loneliness was a physical pain that would last for a week and you would cry your eyes out. So writing that essay, uh, helped me to understand my feelings and to come to terms with my uh, situation. It also helped me to get into the honours paper class. Um, And then I suppose I never kept a diary, but when I was going through difficult times in my life later on, I would resort to writing. Um, I would get up in the middle of the night and go to my laptop and and just write my feelings and go back to bed then feeling lighter in myself. Mm-hmm. And the loneliness you experienced in boarding school, I suppose a lot of people experience that. But do you think yours was particularly um, acute as a consequence of the, the, the fear that was also in, in your life from a young age? Yes, because you're ripped away from your home. My father had died when I was four and... At that stage, my two older sisters and I were sent to boarding school. The youngest was still too young to go. But the three of us were in different divisions of the school and we were only allowed to speak to each other for something like five minutes after tea time. Um, So it was a very regulated and quite uh, severe way of living when I look back on it. Um, So I didn't feel protected. I didn't have a mother or a father to go to and a cry to. And I think that probably exacerbated my fears, that feeling of being adrift and that um, I do remember lying in the dormitory at night as a, a young girl and our school was in, in Cork City and hearing the planes coming and going from the airport and being absolutely terrified that one of them was going to crash through the roof and, and kill me in my bed. You wow. know, I was really scared. Yeah. And of course, all the other girls in the beds in the dormitory around me were all sound asleep. And my sisters were on different floors of the building, so I couldn't go to them. Mm-hmm. It is, it's quite, um, uh, maybe extreme is a wrong word, but um, outside fear of, you know, the plane crashing. Where do you think that that type of fear came from? I'm convinced it came from my father's sudden death when I was four um, because I don't have a a good memory at all um, of my early childhood 
or even, you know, right up to my teens. But I distinctly remember the day my father died. So to me, that means that it was a huge event in my life. And it was the suddenness. He went out to work one day and he never came home. He died of a heart attack driving home um, uh, one evening in December. And uh, I remember, you know, asking Birdie um, Omani, the woman who looked after us as children, uh, repeatedly asking her, what does dead mean? When is daddy coming home? So I know that had a huge impact on me. And I'm convinced that that made me very conscious of the fragility of human life, that you're there one minute and you're gone the next. Was it, um, you write very movingly about that time in your book. How did your mother cope, given she was left with, you know, young girls to rear? It must have been very difficult. It was very difficult for her. And it's amazing that she actually lived to the age of 85 because she never got over my father's death. She never got over the grief. Um, they had a, a great whirlwind romance, got engaged very quickly after meeting and were married uh, two months later. And um, she was from East Cork, a place called Kerry Two. Um, my dad was from Bandon in West Cork. So for her, it was almost like emigrating, coming over to the, the other side of the city. Um, and then having four daughters in, in that social climate was, I'd say that must have been quite intimidating for her. First of all, for herself, she was an attractive young widow, uh, as she said herself, a blow-in in the town. And she had four daughters at a time when the biggest sin a female could commit was to look crooked at a boy. Uh, not to mention getting pregnant outside of marriage. And she always inculcated in us the imperative that we would be uh, independent, that we would grow up to be independent because uh, my father had run a, a very typical country town business. Um, he had a pub and an undertaker's and a coffin factory and a furniture store and uh, sawmills and uh, an auctioneer's business. And he died suddenly and my mother was left to look after all of that. Now, she had been the front of house woman, very charming behind the bar, but she was left to deal with massive tax, um, death taxes and four daughters to rear while she was trying to deal with her own shock and grief. And um, I do remember she used to always tell us that, you know, the invitations stopped coming for her after my father died, that, you know, being a widow, you were outside of society. And you sort of queered the numbers at social events because one person, you know, ended up making uneven numbers at a table. Um, and I, in my own experience now as a widow is that that hasn't actually changed very much in our society. It's extraordinary when so much else has changed, but that hasn't. I know it is incredible because I, she sounds like an incredibly resolute woman. And it seems that the theme um, in your book is the change of Ireland from, you know, the time of your youth to then. 
And I suppose it, it is, it's disappointing to hear that that isn't changed, you know, that the widows are still made to feel as though they're on the outside of society. Yeah. Perhaps uh, widowed men feel the same. I do. I haven't spoken to any about it, but but I have been speaking to a very dear friend of mine who's going through a divorce, and she actually lives in England, and her experience is the same as mine. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing that hasn't changed, I suppose, is the divorce laws. I mean, you'd hear stories about family court, and it's just awful the way two people are pitted against each other. And it's all in camera. And I know. So many times over the years since divorce uh, became legal in Ireland, I had uh, people pleading with me to please tell, write about what is going on in the family courts. And we're actually forbidden as journalists to even say that a case is in the family courts. I mean, the... the uh, the laws relating to the res- the reporting restrictions are really extreme. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose in, in your book you do document great progress in other in other fields. Um, maybe we could start to to tread that path to go along the path that you describe in your book. Um, and your time when you went into the Rathmines College as a, a to for journalism. Um, you you wrote in your book that. You were constantly afraid of being unmasked as a fraud, but that you never suffered from imposter syndrome because you have always felt that you were an imposter. Where did that feeling of, it says you never felt it, but where did that title of imposter come from in Rathmines College? Well, I knew I was an imposter. I I didn't just feel it. I knew it. (laughs) Um, Primarily because I had failed the entrance interview um, to get into Rathmines College. And when the letter arrived to our house in Bandon, I just disintegrated. Um, I was 17. It was the only thing I wanted to do in life was to be a journalist. I cried for days on end. And it was my mother who dug out the um, Dublin telephone directory, as it was in those days, and found the home phone number for Sean Egan, who was the director of the course in Rathmines. And he was a very well-known man at the time. He used to present a Sunday evening uh, religious programme on RTE. And she rang him at night time. And I listened to her side of the conversation. And she was saying, I'm a widow with four daughters and she's the second youngest and she's distraught and there's nothing else she wants to do. Please, will you give her a chance? So Sean Egan did give me a chance. And I'm eternally grateful to him. But from the minute I started in Rathmines, I was terrified I was going to be unmasked. And I didn't tell anybody. I never told any, even of my closest friends until years later, that I had not actually uh, qualified to get in as the rest of them had. Well, I I suppose that the fact that the administrators didn't talk about it either, they realised you did in fact have a place there. That, you know, that you were just as evidently that you were just as capable of a potential journalist as everyone else in the college. Did that, um, did, did, was there ever any interactions with the administrators afterwards? Or? No, it was never mentioned. It was like the third secret of Fatima. Mm-hmm. <laughs> None of us ever mentioned it. Um, I don't think that even when I left Rathmines at the end of the course, that that feeling of being an imposter uh, had lifted. Um, 
uh, you know, it is said that females have it anyway. A lot of females have it anyway and that we have to prove ourselves. So I think I had that double pressure of having to prove myself, um, which may have been good for me in the long run, but um, was certainly difficult at the outset, especially going into a very male world and, you know, newsrooms, uh, screaming editors and I never saw a typewriter flying across the room, but I, I've heard about Really? <laughs> heard about it, yeah. Was it daunting getting into the field then? Did, the, did, you, did you feel the course prepared you for the, 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 maybe Wild West is the term of it, of journalism at the time? I think for the way journalism operated then, the course did uh, prepare me well for it. Um, I needed shorthand and typing. I needed to know how a newspaper was produced because I always wanted to be uh, a print journalist. Um, I needed to know uh, uh, the basics of newspaper law and uh, how to actually write a news story. So I came out uh, with those skills. Um, it's much more complicated now. Um, you know, ethics. We didn't discuss ethics very much in our course. That was something you dealt with when you went out into the big world of journalism. Um, yeah, I, I did feel quite prepared. My first job was with a trucking magazine uh, called Commercial Transport uh, in Rathcool. And I was the only reporter. There was an editor, but he didn't spend much time there because he was also editing an equestrian newspaper in some other part of town at the time. So I was effectively producing these magazines about uh, articulated trucks and tachographs and went to England to test drive a forklift truck at one stage with the uh, the demonstrator uh, working the pedals while I, <laughs> I turned the steering wheel. And how many years did you do that for? I did that for two years. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I, I hadn't heard that now in the course of listening to other interviews of yours. That's very <laughs> cool. The, you mentioned ethics, um, that it wasn't a big thing, a, a point of topic in the college. It seems in the stories you tell in your book that many of the, your colleagues, maybe lack is too far a word, but had, had quest, did questionable decisions. I'm referring to... Um, a particularly harrowing story about um, the Kilkenny incest case, which I suppose many listeners wouldn't be familiar with, but where the, maybe could you describe that and the, the yeah. ethics that were playing in that case? Sure. I would say that most of my colleagues are ethical. Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, I didn't yeah, mean to. Uh, no, no, but very few are unethical. And that's one of the reasons why this memory stands out for me, because I was so horrified by what I was made to do. Um, in the 1990s, early 1990s, I think it was 1993, there, a case came before the criminal courts involving appalling incest by a man against his daughter. And he, on the day he was sentenced to jail for seven years, a photographer and I were sent by the Irish Independent um, to try and find the young woman at the centre of the case. We didn't even know her name and we had no idea where she lived other than that she had grown up in County Kilkenny. It was a dark winter's night and we set out from Dublin 
and we went from village to village and town to town and we couldn't find her. It was getting later and later and uh, our, our stomach started growling with hunger and we spotted a chipper. So I said, I'll go into the chipper and get us something to eat. And while the girl behind the counter was getting the chips, I said to her, um, you wouldn't happen to know where the woman involved in this case today is. And she said, why do you want to know? And I said, I'm a journalist and I'm hoping that she'll do an interview with me. So the girl said, wait here. And she disappeared. And she came, sorry, she came back after a while. And um, she said, come with me. And she brought me to this very drab, bleak looking building. I think it was about three stories high. And we went up a creaking stairs. And right at the top of the building, there was this woman in in a dark room and a, a bundle on the bed, which turned out to be her little boy covered by her coat. It was very cold. And the woman invited me in and we talked and she told me that that day her son, who was seven, had found out that his grandfather was his father. And we talked another while and I was up against deadline and I thanked her and I left. It was the days before technology. So I went to a nearby pub and phoned in the story. And when I was finished, the copy taker and I miss them so much copy takers. They were so skilled and brilliant. Um, she said to me, can you hold on? Uh, the editor wants to talk to you. So there was actually a stand-in editor at the time because the brilliant uh, editor, Vinnie Doyle, was out on sick leave. And this stand-in editor came on the phone and uh, didn't say well done on getting the scoop or finding her anything. Uh, I want you to offer her a stated amount of money, which I can't remember, um, in return for her doing an interview on the record with you and being photographed with her child for publication on Saturday. And I said, no, I am not going to do that. That will destroy their lives. They will be forever remembered for this. And he said, this is not a request. I'm ordering you to do it. Now, Stephen, I have to say this is the only time in my career that I've ever been come face to face with checkbook journalism. So I went back to the woman and I said, I'm really sorry for bothering you, but I have been ordered to make you an offer of this amount of money. And in return, you will have and your son will have to be photographed and named in the paper on Saturday. And I've made you that offer. And now I'm advising you don't do it because you will always be associated with this. And your son is never going to be able to shake it off. And my heart sank because she said, look, I'm going to do the interview. Come back tomorrow morning and we'll do it. But she said, I'm not taking any money. We won't be photographed and we won't be named. So I went back the next morning and I spent about two hours with her and she was the most impressive, amazing woman. She was still only in her 20s. She was so composed and her power of memory was extraordinary. And the story she told me was utterly shocking about the dereliction of duty by the state and the state's authorities. The number of times she had been admitted to hospital as a result of violent attacks by her father with broken bones and bruises. She had given birth 
to her son at the age of 15 and to confide it in a social worker who told her that's family business. She'd run away from home repeatedly and been returned to the family home. Yeah, I, I will never forget her and I sincerely hope that she and her son are having good lives now. I suppose it's almost it could almost use as a case study of ethics in that that she didn't that she declined to give her name, but she said the interview. It was empowering in a way for her, I imagine, was it to to be able to share her story anonymously? Yeah, I hope it was, and I hope it was cathartic for her as well. But do you know that one of the things that I have learned so forcibly over my career is. The number of people who get thrust into national headlines, you know, one moment they're anonymous private citizens and they get thrust into these horrendous stories about human rights and civil rights, and they make the decision that they will go public with what has happened to them in order to prevent it happening to other people. The goodness and the courage of individuals has been so uplifting for me. And, you know, when, when you cover sad stories and, I mean, the troubles in the North were utterly horrific and, you know, the stories were would break your heart. But often I came away just feeling heartened by them, sh- purely by the courage of the people who got caught up in it all. Mm-hmm. I suppose other examples would be Vicky Phelan, Morris McKay, people that suffered consequences themselves for going forward. Definitely. Christine Buckley, I would always mention, Lavinia Kerwick, um, survivors of sexual abuse in the church and in swimming and other sports. Did, did, were these things that kind of gave you a drive to keep going in that dif- more difficult times in your career where, um, not that there were any in particular, but everyone goes through you know hard times in their career, but the fact that you were giving a voice to people like that, like you knew you were making a difference, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I knew that the telling of the stories was making a difference uh, to the audience as well. And that um, I I think Ireland was so insular and so secretive and so full of stigma and taboos when I was growing up and when I started in journalism, like there was no divorce. There were these awful referendum campaigns on divorce and abortion. And there were these horrendous court cases, starting with the X case and going on through the whole alphabet of cases. And I think with all that coming out in the wash, what happened in the Magdalene laundries, the mother and baby homes, the symphysiotomy cases, the case of Bridget McCall with the contaminated blood product. It made us all open our eyes and open our ears to what life was truly like for people we were living among. So in that way, I, th- I realised that journalism was very powerful. Um, but of course, I was very privileged. I was really lucky that my editors assigned me to those stories. They sent me to the north. They sent me abroad, you know, on a all over the world on stories. And I am really grateful. It could have been another journalist. I'm lucky it was me. You, you mentioned um, as well, hunking down with soldiers in the Lebanon in with um, 
being questioned by McGinnis's men in the IRA. How did your earlier experience of fear, you know, interplay with those times in life? Because they're stressful, fearful for anyone. Um, or was it the inverse? Was it exciting in some? It was exciting. Yeah. And it was making me do things I would never have dreamt of doing if if I didn't switch on to automatic professional pilot. <laughs> and I've talked to my friends who are journalists as well, and they have found the same thing, that it wasn't really a case of overcoming your fear. You had to get the story. You couldn't go back to your editor and say, sorry, I was too frightened to go there. Um, so, yeah, it was feeling the fear and doing it anyway, because you had to do it. And it was very fulfilling. And I mean, we have. When I look back on my career. God, I have lived to the full, but vicariously through other people's stories and other people's lives. Mm -hmm. How did your, you were with the Independent, the Sunday Tribune, now at the Times. Um, how did um, working for different institutions um, affect your experience as a journalist? Um, and you are also a freelancer. Was, was the job different in some ways or were you just always, you were chasing a story and that was that, didn't matter what headline you were under? Yeah, the job was always different. I went into the Irish Independent as a young female and got immediately pigeonholed as a features writer and a colour writer, which was really good for me. And it gave me profile and it gave me the opportunity to do, you know, kind of deeper background featured news features um, and the ability to interview people, you know, at length and to do kind of the the nuance and the detail of stories. Then I went to the Sunday Tribune, which was a wonderful paper to work for. Um, you could almost write whatever you wanted. You could use your own topic. You, you had lots of space. I remember doing a profile of uh, the uh, billionaire tax exile, Dennis O'Brien, um, to four and a half thousand words, which was just unbelievable. Uh, long journalism, when long journalism was really out of fashion. I went from there then to the Sunday Times and my friends kept saying, you won't last candlelight there because the Sunday Times was a, a British newspaper with a very British and um, pro-business and I would have considered quite conservative um, editorial line. Um, I stayed there from 2009 until 2022. I got to I be, got to become the political correspondent, which was always something I'd been interested in because my father and my grandfather had been elected politicians. Um, so I was based in Leinster House for a lot of that. And then, you know, I, I started writing the columns in The Independent, but I can see myself growing up when I went into the National Library and went through the archives of the newspapers. I was looking for instances that would show how Ireland had grown up while I'd been a journalist, but I could see myself growing up and some of the stuff I had written in the early years just made me blush. Um, it was, you know, a bit over the top. Yeah, and then now I'm with the Irish Times, which has always been my paper of choice and the paper that I read every day. So I f I'm, I'm thrilled skinny now to be writing a daily column for it. And, and so you actually had to go into the newspaper archives to find... Your old, there wasn't um, 
a the, the the institutions themselves didn't keep like I would have thought to say now the independent from I don't know the early two thousand or the say not the independent but the eighties and nineties the institutions would have kept look this is our paper on this day and anyone could just come in and get get that paper but that's not the case. No, um, the Irish Independent, when I was there, actually, it got rid of its uh, library archive, the actual physical newspaper cuttings that we all relied on. And um, with the Sunday Tribune, of course, went out of business. So I, I had to go to the National Library to get that. Um, the, the Sunday Times and the Irish Times, I, c I could do online at home. Yeah, it's it's a shame that those uh, physical archives aren't it is readily really. available. Yeah, um, was it's, it it's history. It is, but was it was that kind of a thrilling thing in itself? Because you spent your whole career like at the, the like the cutting edge, like with a, you know the old saying today's new or today's news is tomorrow's history. Yes, was it a different experience that to go into the archives and kind of go rooting around for something that you knew was there? but you just didn't know where. It was the known unknown almost. Yeah, it was. Um, and not only did I go looking for things that I thought I had done well and then realized, no, this this isn't good enough for the book. I found things that I had forgotten I had done and found myself giggling <laughs> at the memories, you know, that I'd completely forgotten. There was one in 1990, Ireland had the presidency of what was then called the, I think it was called the, EC, European Community, and um, the then Minister for Tourism, Seamus Brennan, invited all the other ministers for tourism, I think there were 12 of them at the time, to Ashford Castle for a weekend. And a photographer called Brian Farrell and I got embedded in Ashford Castle for the weekend. And it was absolutely hilarious. Um, it ended up each night with all the ministers competing in uh, a, a song competition in the dungeon bar and uh, like the Portuguese, I think it was the Portuguese minister singing, was it Molly Malone or something? And then to the Dutch minister singing in English and Dutch. And There's a good job there was no smartphones back then. <laughs> Absolutely. Um we did, that was the event that you did diaries on, didn't you? you yes. Yes, they were yeah. very enjoyable. That's yeah. What's the word for it? Bram, um, in fiction, Bram Stoker's, there's a word for that, you know, when you write a novel in diary format. But I think doing columns in a diary format is, it's so enjoyable. Yeah. Um, uh, what came across to me rereading that was the innocence of the time. You know, Eta was a big thing in Spain at the time and the Spanish minister would have been quite heavily guarded. The troubles in Northern Ireland were, you know, pretty acute at the time. So there'd have been a lot of security about the place. And yet the, the freedom we had to mix with them and, and the gaiety of the weekend was, it was all so innocent compared to today. Rewinding a small bit, you said that in the book that your first published article ever had something to do with this very college, Trinity. The, yes. the discrimination in the women's rowing club. Could you tell us about that? Yes, I have a very blurry memory of it. Um, I wrote it for the Irish Times, actually, on a freelance basis. There was some row between the men and the women in the Trinity Rowing Club. I think the women were not allowed to be full members or did not have full rights 
and the women uh, were up in arms about it. That that's the extent of my memory, and I didn't find the piece oh, <laughs> when I was. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look for it. I was under time pressure mm-hmm. researching it. But that's one thing that, yeah, that I'd have to go back and look for. Mm-hmm. I know there's, there's plenty of examples of it in Trinity's history. This society um, forbid women from debating for years and years and years. Really? And there was, so another society was founded, the Elizabethan Society. And uh, after a while, um, they amalgamated. But to this day, the Elizabethan, it's a subcommittee in the society. So it's cool. Really? Yeah. yeah. And if you go down to that room there, they have, the, or there's, a, there's a statue of your man, Salmon. Um, he was an awful man. He said, over my dead body will women enter this college. So in that room down there, they have a board of all of the Elizabethan presidents, all of the women that were president. And under it, they've put a photo or a painting of Salmon. So it's over his dead body that... All the, the, oh, I love it. It's very, yeah, great po- poetic history. Um, one more um, case that I don't think enough people are my age know about it because to an extent it was never resolved. Um and that's the case of the sexual abuse by one Gibney in the swimming, the, the Olympic swimming team. You wrote one article in 2007 with the title from a quote from one of the victims that said, my dream was to swim, he ruined my life. And five years later, you wrote another article that read, read this and weep for the abused girl let down by all. Now, to this day, Gibney's still at large. How did it feel then that five years later you found yourself having to write about this same woman and then all these years later there really hasn't been justice done? I, well, first of all, I am very happy to hear that the guards have completed a new investigation into George Gibney and that there is a a file with the DPP I sincerely hope that a decision is made to uh, for Ireland to apply for his extradition back from Florida to face trial here. I am disappointed for the woman in that uh, piece that you mentioned that her case won't be one of them now because her case was part of the second investigation. This is the third investigation. I need to explain. Um, the first investigation uh, contained, uh, w- related to 27 uh, survivors, and it ended up going to the Supreme Court. Gibney's lawyers argued that he could not adequately defend himself because some of the charges related to uh, times too long back for him to be able to defend himself. And the the Supreme Court upheld that and it was sent back to the High Court and as a result, Gibney um, was not uh, prosecuted, left the country and ended up in America, having gone via Scotland, uh, where he was uh, unveiled and uh, did a runner to America. And after he went to America, um, I interviewed this beautiful young woman um, who had, as a younger child, been routinely sexually abused by an older neighbour down the road where she lived. He was the grandfather of children in a neighbouring house. And when this woman's mother was in hospital for a long time, 
this man used to mind her in the family home. And um, eventually that family left the neighborhood, including the abuser. And the girl was having learning difficulties in school and was having psychological problems. And she suddenly discovered the joy of swimming in her local swimming pool. And people used to stop to watch her because she was such a, a, a beautiful swimmer. And people used to ask who she was. And there was a coach at that swimming pool who recognized her ability and recommended to her parents that she go to George Gibney in New Park Swimming Club. And she did. And um, she ended up being raped by George Gibney. Uh, at a swimming camp, act by coincidence in Florida. After that, the first abuser was investigated by the guards on foot of a complaint by another survivor. And they went to this woman and she made a statement. And that man was jailed. And actually, at the sentencing, the judge said, it was very telling that one of those two survivors had gone on to be abused sexually by another abuser, her swimming coach. So that gave her the strength to go to the guards and make a statement about Gibney, which was part, began the second investigation of George Gibney. The guards were brilliant and they were very confident that there was enough they had got statements from other uh, survivors who hadn't been in the first batch. And they were very confident that they were going to get him at last. And then they called to her family home one evening and said, we are really, really sorry, but a decision has been made not to apply for his extradition. And the reason that I was told for that decision was that under the law, Gibney if he had been extradited back, could apply to the court for an order that he would be uh, prosecuted on the charges relating to each uh, complainant individually, which would have really weakened the case because in child sexual abuse and these historic cases, it's a pattern of evidence that that is the strongest evidence you have when you've no forensic evidence and there are no eyewitnesses. And that after the guards left, the woman left the family home and she tried to end her life and she was found and brought to hospital. And that was the beginning of countless attempts by her to end her life. And she has spent nearly all her life in psychiatric hospitals since and much of that in on suicide watch and I've had a number of very uh, frightening experiences with her when she has uh, on one occasion she asked me to meet her in Cleary's cafe and she took a ring off her finger and gave it to me and she said I want you to have that to remember me my by I won't ever meet you again and I realized that she was planning to do something. And I ended up actually ringing her psychiatrist and taking her to a hospital. 
hopefully with the new case that's been sent to the DPP, um, Yibney could be brought back. Should we be hopeful that the next time you write, should we be hopeful that the justice system will deliver something in the way of justice, that the next time you have to write a piece about this case, that it could be about justice served rather than the failings? I really hope that that will be the case. I'm very reluctant to write anything about it until I see that man behind bars because uh, it's so dangerous now um, that there is the risk of prejudicing any forthcoming trial and I certainly do not want to be the cause of any trial collapsing and I think we journalists have to be really, really careful from now on. I have to um, mention two people, Johnny Waterson, who was the person, the, the, the journalist who actually named George Gibney for the first time in the Sunday Tribune, a brilliant journalist, Johnny, and more recently, Mark Horgan for his podcast series, um, Where is George Gibney, which has led to new survivors coming forward and making statements to the guards so that this third investigation could get underway. And again, it just shows the power of journalism. It does. Yeah. And it makes up for the many, many failings of the justice system where it isn't delivered. That has been the case. Well, we're, we're not perfect, but, you know, the courts aren't perfect either. No, they make, a hope, and they make up for each other's lackings. Last few questions now. Um, what is your process of writing? Do you come up with an idea and write it down straight away? Or do you find yourself over the page thinking, OK, what am I going to do for this week's article? OK, for the column, um, my deadline for column is 11 o'clock on a Thursday. So from five past 11 on Thursday until I get newspapers on Sunday morning, that's my weekend. I'm off. From Sunday morning, I am desperately thinking about what I'm going to write for next Friday's column. And I have this great weakness that I can't write about something unless I feel very strongly about it. It just, it doesn't work for me. It's not, it doesn't ring true. It's not genuine. Um, fortunately, I do tend to feel very strongly most weeks about the awful things that are going on in the world. So on on Wednesday, I will jot down thoughts and like fragments of arguments for the case that I want to make once I know what I want to write about. And then on Wednesday, I'll write about 800 words of it and I leave it. And then I get up really early on a Thursday morning and I'll read it and chop and change it and put the final 200 words on and try and polish it up and make sure I'm saying exactly what I want to say. And then I press send and I go for a nice cup of coffee. <laughs> Very good. And say on the Monday now, would you, do you still read the physical paper or do you doom scroll on the, the websites? I have sub uh, online subscriptions to a couple of Irish and international newspapers. But I always treat myself to the uh, daily delivery of the Irish Times because I actually end up marking things in it with, you know, I'm cutting pieces out. I'm, I'm an old fashioned girl, Stephen. <laughs> Very good. Of the, the, all the many stories you've covered over your career, 
Um, what would you say is required reading? Like what topics do you think it is vital for, say, my generation to learn about? Um, because it's not in the news anymore. Can I say two topics? Absolutely, as many <laughs> okay. as you want. Okay, Northern Ireland, the Troubles. I, I know young people are aware of what happened and the politics and all of that. But I think the human stories tend to forgot, get forgotten. And the awful strain that people lived under 24 hours a day, every day of the week in, in that environment. Um, I would come back to Dublin, you know, after working in Belfast or Derry or other parts of the north. And as soon as I crossed the border coming back, I'd feel the strain lifting off me. And I often thought, how do they live with that? So I think it's very important to get a feel for what it was like. We know the statistics, the awful statistics of the number of people who died and the people who were injured. But there's this horrendous trauma. And this is why I'm really glad to be speaking to a young audience for a change. Um, I would definitely recommend a novel called Close to Home by uh, a Northern Ireland writer, a young male writer called, forgive me if I got his name right, wrong, Michael Maguire, I think it is. Fantastic novel in which he recreates that atmosphere of stress and tension and the post-troubles trauma that is being passed down through generations and has not been addressed. So yes, that's one topic that I would single out. And the other is, forgive me for being a feminist again, but the appalling treatment of women by, by our state over the best part of 100 years. It took an awful long time for us to own up to it. And I think we're still learning about it. And in order, I always say that some of the best feminists I know are men. In order for all males and all females to understand why reparation needs to be made and amends need to be made for what was done, we need to know Again, the human stories of how women were treated by our state, the stigma that was attached to us, the way, you know, women had fought for freedom. And then the winners started writing the history and the women were written out of it and the constitution was written and the women were sent back to the kitchen. And we still have that awful clause in our constitution, you know, consigning women to the to the kitchen. Uh, that is unbelievable in the year 2023. And we've been talking about a referendum on it for years and they still can't come up with a wording. So please, yeah, take some time to learn about what happened to my mother and your mother and your grandmother and your, you know, your aunts and your great aunts. It's pretty awful. Absolutely. And um, very, very much worth um, educating ourselves about. Last question. In today, oh, no, I'm you, enjoying this. Are you, we can keep going if you like. I have a couple of but, but, um, but in today's, in this morning's piece, um, you write in the Irish Times about how the world needs a Gandhi to lead us um, away from the abyss. Um, that the machoism that's replaced 
leadership is 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 not up to scratch. It never could be by definition. Um, but it closes with the observation that Sinn Féin, by demand by Sinn Féin's demand that we expel the Israeli ambassador from Ireland, they've abandoned um, the the nature of compromise that McGuinness and Adams went into the peace process with. Now, the strongest, if not the most common view in Trinity would be in line with, of students in Trinity, would be in line with what Sinn Féin are advocating for. I would say, just from speaking to people, that even, at least among students in Trinity, that the two-state solution isn't even, you know, received anymore. It's almost disparaged that they that there is this opinion that the only justice that can be done for Palestine is to, for Palestine to be Palestine before the creation of Israel. And there doesn't seem to be the want of compromise, notwithstanding, of course, wanting justice in Gaza, what's going on now. What would you say to those, to people my age that don't have the appetite for compromise, that they want justice instead? Hard question. (laughs) First of all, my heart is with the majority opinion uh, of your fellow students in Trinity. I absolutely abhor what Israel is doing in Gaza and elsewhere, uh, what it has been doing in the West Bank, what it has been doing on the border of Lebanon. I've been in Lebanon uh, a a number of times. I've been in Israel a number of times. Um, I think there is absolutely no justification for what it is doing and what it has been doing for so long. That said, I think, and and yes, my instinct would be dispatch the uh, Israeli ambassador this second and everybody else in the Israeli embassy and cut off all ties. But that is a self-gratification. The harder thing to do is to knock heads together and to talk peace. Now, you say that there is that impasse um, in the Middle East and it's been there for so long, it's so hard to do. I really think it's up to what's called the international community to do to do that. Show that they are real friends. Um, I, I, was it um, Rosalind Carter who, who said that, you know, a great leader, a, a good leader leads people to where they're going. A great leader leads them to where they don't want to go, but should be. And I think that is just, that should be our anthem. Um, I think um, Joe Biden has been a huge disappointment. Um, He can't have it both ways. You know, cheering on Israel, giving it carte blanche to go in and murder, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, including children sorry, 10,000 people, including children in um, Gaza, while settlers are killing other Palestinians in the West Bank, sending in a nuclear submarine uh, after already sending two warships. That is not the sign of a strong leader. We are appallingly served by our world leaders at the moment. Rishi Sunak in, in London, how dare he say there are no other sides. There's no balance. It's all on the side of Israel. How dare the British government 
try to prohibit the uh, marches for peace from going ahead in London. That is the start of tyranny. That is the slippery slope. How dare Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine? You know, but if we just answer all these things with guns, we're just going to create more generations of it. What, what the world is going to have to deal with now is generations of Palestinians who have been driven out of their homes and have been traumatized for generations to come. Children who have seen their friends beheaded as they were playing with them. How do you deal with that? Not by violence again. You've got to sit down and talk to people. And that's why I mentioned Martin Guinness. He was somebody who turned from violence, accepted that the only way to bring peace was by talking to the enemy. And it wasn't easy, as Bill Clinton said. He was hated by his many of his former bedfellows. He was distrusted by the people he had fought against, but he had the courage to stick with it. And he told the truth, and that was how he built up trust in himself. And that's the only way to resolve all the horrendous wars that are going on in the world today and the abuses of human rights. And yes, I believe that there should be a Palestinian state. And I, I do firmly, I understand why Israel was created, but it was a bad decision to create any state on the basis of a religion is playing with fire. Very good. Justine McCarthy, thank you very much for coming on to Ramcast. I loved it. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. That was our conversation with Justine McCarthy. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.